Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. Today's episode begins a series of four dedicated to suicide prevention. May is Mental Health Month, and I thought it was appropriate to really dedicate all four episodes this month to a subject that is so important in the work that all of us do. I want to caution you because this episode discusses the sensitive subject of suicide, that it may be a trigger for some. If you or someone you love and is close to you is struggling with suicidal thoughts, talking helps. Please reach out to the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or text HOME to 741-741, the crisis text line. My guest today is Ann Moss Rogers. She is the emotionally naked public speaker, a registered suicide prevention trainer, a TEDx storyteller, and a NAMI Virginia fundraising chair. She is the author of the award-winning book, Diary of a Broken Mind. Her second book, Emotionally Naked, A Teacher's Guide to Preventing Suicide and Recognizing Students at Risk, will be out in August of 2021. It will be published through Jossie Bass, a division of Wiley Publishing. Following her son Charles' tragic suicide on June 5, 2015, she sold her digital marketing business to pursue mental health education and suicide prevention. She has given a TEDx talk, Can a Blog Save Lies?, been interviewed by the New York Times, and was the first non-clinician ever invited to speak at the National Institute of Mental Health. She is a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill and now lives in Richmond, Virginia with her husband, Randy. Her surviving son, Richard, works in Los Angeles as a screenwriter and film editor. Please join me and welcome Ann Moss Rogers. Ann Moss, thank you so much for joining me. You and I met recently at the American Academy of Pediatric Suicide Prevention Summit, and you were one of the keynote speakers to share your personal story and to really talk about your beloved son. And I was wondering if you would be willing to share your story about your son. Absolutely. Charles was my youngest son and he was about six foot one, six foot two around there. And he was 130 pounds. So from the time he was born to the time he was a teenager, very, very tall and skinny. And he was also adorable. The girls loved him. And he was the funniest, most popular kid in school. And it was around the time he turned 15 that I started to notice a real change in him. Now, prior to that, we'd seen some issues and I kept asking about them at the doctor's office and I never really got any answers or I would get the answer of, you know, this is normal growing up stuff. And it turns out a lot of what I asked wasn't normal growing up stuff, but you know, I think 
of the time, that's what they thought. His drug and alcohol use started to escalate around that time. And we've been very open on this topic. And I couldn't understand why. And so I would ask him, but he never came across with any reasons because I think he wasn't really sure himself. And it turns out that drugs and alcohol were his antidote for not killing himself because he would have these episodes that he didn't understand that he wanted to kill himself. And he thought, well, you know, doing a drug or alcohol is better than killing myself, right? So he didn't really recognize that that was an unhealthy coping strategy and there were other ways to deal with it. And, and we didn't know he suffered from these thoughts. I would find out later through a friend of his that it was middle school when he'd be up in the middle of the night and he would text somebody before we took the phones out of the room and realized that's what they were doing. And he would say, he would make some dark remarks. So I really think his suicidal ideation went back to when he was probably in fifth grade. But his pro real problems started when he was around 15 years old. He, we ended up, um, trying to go to several mental health professionals. I kept asking for a diagnosis. I never, we never got that one locally. And had I known the phrase, I want a psychological evaluation, I would have gotten one. But they kept doing a lot of testing and they kept the mental health professionals by now. And they kept telling me, oh, he's just high risk. But he was in the room with me and I wasn't sure what I should ask in front of him. So when I left, I would call back and say, can you, I need somebody to tell me what that means. And they just never called back because guess what? They'd already gotten my check <laughs> and they were probably overwhelmed as well. That could be part of it, but and finally, I'm reaching out to someone, a local system that I thought would really help me. And I've been through this process of answering questions and insurance for months. And then I called them and they say, well, we just can't help you. And then I called the mental health department in our county and I got the same message. And that was devastating. So both the private healthcare, a public healthcare system and the county system all said, gosh, we can't help you. And I, it just left me feeling alone and naked and unsupported. I asked for support groups. Nobody ever told me a support group. And it wasn't until we sent our son to a wilderness program to the tune of $32,000, none of which was covered by insurance. That's where we got a psychological evaluation, which would have been a $50 copay at home. And that's when we got a list of organizations that support parents. I was actively asking for this information. 
And I learned about the group Families Anonymous, and they became my family away from family. But I have since learned there are groups through NAMI, uh, National Alliance of Mental Illness, which is available in every state in the United States. And there is a family support group. So long story short, he ends up going to therapeutic boarding school, which he didn't love. <laughs> after the wilderness program. And then he comes back in 2014, having spent about 18 months in some kind of outside placement. Well, he, unfortunately, he didn't start to integrate the new coping strategies. He went back to the ones he used before because the, the suicide risk had never been addressed. And nobody had ever mentioned it to me, even though I did ask. And it was just, when I did ask, it was just kind of hanging in the air. And I always felt like I wanted to grab it back and put it in my pocket. And he ends up becoming addicted to heroin because to a depressed kid, and you take that the first time, it made him feel like a king. And it was just way too sexy for him to give that up. And I think like most kids, he thought, I can handle this, I won't get addicted. But of course he did, because youth probably have about 20% chance of getting addicted, whereas adult, maybe we have around 10%. We didn't know it right at first, but I would see some odd behavior. So by now we had a diagnosis of depression and we knew about the drug use, but figuring out which is, you know, which is drug use and which is mental illness and what is, you know, he's a creative genius. So he had kind of a bizarre side to him. So it was always hard to untangle all this and we're doing it by ourselves because we certainly have no support. And he finally admits to uh, having a heroin addiction. Actually, he said an opiate addiction. He'd never admitted to heroin. And he goes to detox and rehab. And then from there, we um, had him in a recovery house and he relapsed. They took him to the emergency room. This is part of their protocol when somebody relapsed. So their idea was we'll take him back to detox. But in order to do that, he has to be medically cleared and he has to have a psychological evaluation or an assessment. I think it would be called. He goes to the hospital, gets the whole physical workup. No assessment there. They take him to a private mental health hospital. They refuse to do the assessment because they don't take those patients anymore. You know, meaning we're not messing with drug addicts. They're, they're not in our jurisdiction. And he had also in that, he goes to detox, he sees a friend, he walks out. And again, he sees a um, medical professional when he sprains his ankle. So three times in that period before he killed himself, he sees a medical professional within two weeks. All missed opportunities for, you know, somebody to notice that this kid does not look good. We need to do a mental health assessment. And I'm not blaming anyone. It's just 
now we know, and I think we should act on it because I don't know if it would have saved his life, but it certainly would have given me the heads up. And then we're sitting in the back of a police car in a parking lot when the police deliver the news that they had found my son dead. And I thought for sure it was overdose. But when my husband said, how did he die? They told us it was a suicide and the, the method left no question. And I remember watching my husband with this emotional explosion and I just couldn't absorb the information. I just didn't understand why suicide. And it would be a really long time before I would. After that, of course, we were devastated and trying to deal with that and manage it and that, and I found a support group for that too afterwards, which, which helped a lot. I started a blog called Emotionally Naked to start writing about it. And I wrote a newspaper article that I thought no one will ever read this and it went viral. And the reason it went viral is because other people were reading their story in mine. Other parents, other siblings, either with the, um, substance misuse piece, the mental health piece, the suicide piece, all three, just two of them. There were just so many dealing with this. And I read and, and responded to all 2000 comments from all over the world, but it was the first time I didn't feel completely isolated and alone. And while that article is hard to write and it's hard to put out there, I can't tell you how it felt for there to be other people who understood and I felt supported. And I was addicted to that feeling. And so I had this audience on Emotionally Naked and people were asking to subscribe and so I built that into the uh, blog. And today I have 5,000 subscribers from mostly the United States, but all over the world on this subject. Thank you for sharing that. It is, um, it's so heart-wrenching and it makes me aware of this um, kind of schism that we have between the mental health piece, the depression the substance use piece and the suicidality as if they're all three separate things. And if you have one of those, you can't get help for the other, which is crazy. You know, the piece that we can't treat your son's depression because he has a substance use problem when they're interconnected. How do you sort that out? And I, I understand the treatments are, are different, but that just feels like such a barrier and such a roadblock. Oh, it was huge. You totally hit the nail on the head. I mean, I kept, when we would go and to get his mental health treated, there was one psychiatrist who asked about his drug use. We talked about it. And then once he heard that he had in the past week used a substance, he stood up and literally shamed and humiliated both of us. I am not treating, you know, crossed his arms and stood there like, you need to leave my office. Mm -hmm. And 
that's when my son lost faith in the mental health system. I mean, and that's why he was never compliant after that. And once you lose that compliance with a 15 year old, you can't get it back. Right. That's when he started to abuse or misuse um, drugs and alcohol even more. Well, I think Brene Brown talks a lot about shame and vulnerability and guilt being, I did something bad and shame being, I am bad. And once you hear that, I mean, how do you, how do you come back from that? And uh, I'm just so sorry. And it, it just makes me so cognizant of my words as a healthcare provider matter a lot more than I can know, it sounds like. And so you know, as a a pediatrician, you know, I'm not certainly not trained to be a substance use clinician. But on the front end, I mean, I'm winding it back. What do pediatricians need to know and and other primary care folks, nurse practitioners, PAs, family practice? What do we need to know? What do we need to be looking for? In terms of substance misuse or self-harm, you can usually see the cuts you know, by a child or with substance misuse, there are a ton of different things they present with. And I actually have um, Signs of Drug Use, which is a free ebook download that gives you about four or five pages of the different signs that you can look for because there's so many different drugs out there. But I think the main thing is knowing whether children are experiencing some kind of relationship disruption. That seems to be a big trigger for this particular audience. So what is relationship disruption? Parental divorce, maybe a parent is incarcerated or deployed, Um, the substance use disorder of a parent, grief and loss, loss of a sibling, a parent, a friend has rejected them, they've lost a boyfriend, They were humiliated by a group of friends because those peer relationships are the center of their universe. And those relationship disruptions seem to trigger children who are already vulnerable. So it's never one reason. It's never that somebody suicides because they broke up with a boyfriend. It's because that was the trigger that kind of was the final straw in in the whole picture. So typically kids who are going through those kind of stresses are at higher risk for suicide. When I was writing a a book, I interviewed uh, Dr. Victor Schwartz, who had been the medical director of the Jed Foundation. And he pointed out that transitions and many transitions for young people were big triggers for suicidality. So That is middle school to high school, high school to college. But he also pointed out those many transitions from like spring break back to school or from college to going home for the holidays, that oftentimes those are also triggers for suicidality. So transitions in their life, moving is another one, but but those are big. The, the frequent flyers, the kids that come in, they get every stomach ache, they get every virus, they have aches and breaks, and they catch everything and they have chronic illness, they're at higher risk. 
And often that's because mental health and physical health to your brain, we may separate it in all these little silos, but our brains don't. And they're merged. So a lot of the physical things that we see are the result of, of mental health issues. It could be depression or it could be trauma or it could be both. Any children struggling with gender identity, LGBTQ issues, eating uh, disorders, mental health problems, perfectionists also. If a child has, has had a previous attempt, and we don't always know that, and I'd say that 90% of previous suicide attempts are unknown to parents, and that actually is data through the ASK suicide screening tool from the National Institute of Mental Health. Another interesting fact is that talking about suicide doesn't give them the idea. However, there seems to be some relationship with their exposure to suicide. So if there's been a, a suicide in their family or their school, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a child they knew well. It could be that they've heard about a suicide in their district, they're in the middle school and it happened at the high school. That's called the cohort experience. So those children may not be an immediate risk, but we don't know why, but maybe it's put in their toolbox as a potential coping skill. Once they kind of hear about it, well, this person escaped, maybe I could do the same. We don't want to ignore that the star athlete with none of these issues presenting could be at risk for suicide because we have found that to be the case. But those are, those are places that you can potentially look out for, you know, in special situations. And I've even heard that um, numbers of suicides have gone up after celebrity suicides, for example, like Robin Williams certainly in the adult population. So I know the media, I think, has been much more careful, I think, with the guidance from lots of uh, suicide prevention um, bodies, that it's really important how these things get reported. And we have to be careful about that because of this contagion. Oh, gosh. Uh and I will tell you, I see that literally. I run a website and I used to be a digital marketing professional and I still do that on the side. And I do it for this population. So I noticed after um, Anthony Bourdain's suicide, once they reported it and they reported how he died, there was a page on my site that it went up five times the number of visitors. And then I started getting comments, five times as many comments as I had before. So it went from 50 people a day to over a thousand. And you can just see the graph. So, you know, what happens in our media is really, really important. And it does, it does trigger people. Well, and I also, on the flip side, I think there's been a lot more careful discussions about suicide, I think, especially during the pandemic and everybody's worried, you know, that are those numbers going up? And so I see a lot more programming where they will end with the suicide prevention numbers or crisis text. So I do think that there's an effort to kind of get that help out there. 
um, at least or some awareness about there the is the big media outlets like NPR, Washington Post, New York Times, um, and ABC, NBC. Those those big ones definitely have adopted it. And anytime I am interviewed, I, I discuss with the um, station. You know, don't use the committed phrase. You know, list the crisis text line and the um, prevention lifeline. You know, and I will tell them. And, and the same goes with the addiction. I don't want them to show paraphernalia. You know, we need to talk about recovery as possible instead of just constantly focusing on this sensationalism. Yeah, I love that message. Recovery is possible. I that there's hope. I once had a an administrator told, tell me that was suicide prevention really meaningful because if somebody was going to kill themselves, they were going to do it anyway. And oh, I, so I said, nope, that's that's not right. That's not true. So there's a lot of stigma, sort of false assumptions. And, and then I think fear. And you and I had talked about this prior to um, our recording now about this sort of physician provider feeling frozen when somebody, I mean, if we're going to ask the questions as we should, and it's really important that we use the language. I used to use to say, have you ever wished that you weren't here anymore? Well, you know, they're in my office and yeah, probably they wish they weren't here. And it took me a long time before I could just say the words, have you thought about suicide? Have you ever thought about killing yourself? Because it was so uncomfortable for me to ask. It felt so, so raw and almost like, should I say that? And the other was to change, um, to talk about death by suicide. So now if I hear someone use the, the term commit, it sort of like takes me aback you know, so that those words are important to use. But we also, if we're going to be screening for these things, we have to be prepared for the answer and responding with fear, our own feeling frozen or stuck is not helpful. No. And one thing, you just got to set the expectation that you're going to be uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable subject. And know that every single time you ask it, and have a conversation, there will be at least a twinge of, this is so big, I can't handle this, I'm not qualified. <laughs> and I, I understand that I've answered thousands now, and every time I think, I don't have what it takes. But one thing we need to understand is just asking and letting them talk and listening with empathy that alone is probably the biggest the biggest thing you can do because lots of these kids have been holding this in for years and they've not told a single person on the planet. So what happens in their minds, it just grows and it's bigger and bigger. And they may even have left a lot of hints thinking, oh, well, my friends will pick up on that. But of course, even when they make an outright declaration, it can be ignored. And certainly the subtle um, hints are often overlooked, unfortunately. And I think that we need to know that by by not asking the question is far riskier than asking the question. And that you know, if you're using a validated tool, 
you've got to keep in mind that that's being responsible. And so forge ahead when your brain wants to say, I want the escape hatch, I want out of here, that you override that and you make yourself stay because there is this little human being in front of you that has suffered for years and years, probably, or at least months or weeks with this on their mind and then suffered through these episodes all by themselves, not understanding what was happening. And they need to feel like you're there with them. So that reassurance of I'm here with you now, I am honored you shared this with me. I know how much courage that took. And I want you to know we're going to help you get the help you need. And then tell them, well, you know what? You're 10 years old. I think that you're old enough to understand this process. So I'm going to share with you what the next steps are. So you feel part of the process and you feel like you have to say so. We don't want to fragilize kids by, you know, kind of going behind their back and, and just saying, well, we're going to put you in the system. We need to make them part of that so they have an understanding of, of how it all unfolds. I think something you've said is really powerful. This is very child-centered. And there are three, three words, two sets of three words, tell me more and I can help. And that those are very simple and the tell me more and then wait and, and hear and not be afraid to hear that. Um, and then I can help. I mean, maybe I can't help with your therapy, but I can help you find the help that you need as opposed to that message. I have no idea what I'm doing leave and go to the emergency room. This is, yeah. too, this is too much. And, and, you know, maybe there are times when, you know, an emergency room is what's needed, but my experience, at least in the outpatient setting is rarely is the risk imminent right this minute. Mm -hmm. And that most kids with that um, support and asking the questions and kind of getting a sense of how bad is this, that you can facilitate getting the help that they need without an inpatient admission, um, you know, that that often is what they need. I mean, you can't just say, okay, we're done now. Goodbye. I mean, you have to have a plan. Right. And follow up. I think that that caring contacts that they talk about in the suicide prevention world that which is basically, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm thinking of you. Are you okay? Exactly. That's not that hard. It doesn't take a lot of uh, technical expertise. That's such a big part of the process that people just want to feel like there's somebody in their corner. And that's so big, especially with a child, because as scared as you are for their, for their answer, they're petrified. Mm -hmm. And another reason I think pediatricians didn't ask it because they didn't feel like they had the support services to be for that child. And we do now, we have those, and we can't leave that alone in their heads. We must ask this question. It is, it is our responsibility to do that. And we can find someone to do an assessment so that, you know, it, let's say everybody is booked in your area. Typically, 
that's a referral and it's okay, dedicate a year. But if you say, I'm just looking for an assessment, then that's a different story. Then you can at least assess that risk. I mean, that's not the pediatrician's responsibility to actually do the assessment, but to get them that assessment and know that that's an important part of the process. I do think that there are some things that pediatricians can and really should do once we hear the response, yes, I have been thinking about killing myself. I do think we can use some brief assessments like the um, Ask Suicide Screening Questionnaire has a brief suicide assessment tool or like the Columbia, you know, just so that I have a sense of, do you have a plan? Do you have intent? Do you have means? Is this a lower risk? Is this moderate? Is this really high or imminent? And I do think that that's something that is reasonable for us to do so that I kind of know which path do I go as far as that next step. But to do a comprehensive, of course not. Um, But that's where it's really important that we make relationships with people in our communities. So I do know who can see that person on an urgent basis. Um, Right. I, I think, and I was assuming they'd already done the screening part of it. So yes, I definitely think that you could have people in your office who do the screenings. I know that Dr. Abernathy, who's a pediatrician, who was the first one to use the Ask Suicide Screening tool, he took two questions from the depression screen, two questions from the anxiety screen, and then the four questions from the suicide screening tool is sort of the overall mental health kind of evaluation so that it, you know, so the ask takes about 20 seconds. And with the addition of the other questions, it takes a few more seconds, but it just gives you that initial screening and of all those issues at one time. And I thought, man, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting that he does it that way. And it, and it, it's worked for them. Well, and I do think that, you know, again, this idea of universal screening. In my practice, we've been doing depression screening and we ask about suicidality at well visits and if they're coming in for mental health visits. So a child that we're treating for anxiety or ADHD, but maybe we're missing the boat by not asking at every visit, because like you said, you know, a kid may have touched our system because they um, had an injury. And maybe we miss that opportunity. And I think you've told the story about Dr. Abernathy's practice. Maybe you can share that story. So there was a kid who came in with a broken leg. And I think he was a star athlete. And they, the, the nurse just had a feeling about this child. And at, at the time, Dr. Abernathy's practice was only doing um, the suicide screening on well visits because they were the first practice to do this. And the nurse said, I got a funny feeling. And he's like, go for it. So she did the screening and he came out positive. And come to find out he had the means to, you know, to, to suicide that night. And he did not because of their intervention. And he came back, I think it was a month later and, and thanked them for saving his life. And of course, how grateful would the parents be that close 
I mean, they were that close. I mean, this child had intentionality and just by being asked, you know, you know, they avoided a a death and that's just big. And then my son was there with a sprained ankle and he was in clear distress. That would have been a good time to, to screen him for suicide risk. It brings me to tears hearing that story because, you know, it's, it could have been, it could have been so different had he not asked. And I think we're so afraid. And I mean, I think it's a real true fear that if I keep asking this, I'm going to find it. And then, you know, I can't, how can I do this in the course of my day? And I think the reality is, you know, we're not going to be overwhelmed, but I mean, the business we're in is to take care of kids and save kids. And right. I mean, why not ask? I mean, we take blood pressures, right? Most kids don't have hypertension, but we take blood pressures. So maybe this is another vital sign um, that if we're really going to save kids' lives, maybe we need to ask. And I am going to include in this podcast series in the month of May, um, which is Mental Health Month, um, a repeat of Dr. Lisa Horowitz, which was episode eight talking about the ask suicide screening question and uh, questionnaire. And so listeners can, can look for that. One other piece I wanted to ask you about is what about parents? Um, How, you know, so I've talked to this kid, I've hopefully done all the things that you've said. I've, I've asked pointed questions. I've heard this child and now I need to tell their parents. Um, What's that? reaction are the parents going to deny it I mean sometimes I've had them say you know oh he's just trying to get attention I mean what about the parent piece how how do we help parents so that we can make sure that we keep this kid safe so your parents depending on their ethnic background or their religious background or their background in general can have a variety of different responses a lot of them will say he's just trying to get attention. Uh, some of them will be in denial. Others will like want to sleep next to the child, you know, on suicide watch because then now they're panicked. And it's important to say to them, something is gravely wrong in this child's life. And we're now been alerted to it. This child clearly does want help because he answered yes. And the good thing is we know about it. So that means we can do something about it. Parents that are in denial, you just have to say something is gravely wrong in this child's life for him or her to have answered yes on this screening tool. And for the health and safety of your child, we can't ignore that. So you just take the, we're doing this and we hope you get on board. Right. Maybe more of an authoritative, a gently authoritative move. And we're going to let you know what the next steps are because we want to keep your child safe from suicide. I think that we have the opportunity to use our, not authority, but our, our knowledge and our expertise and and hopefully the trust that we have with a family to be able to bring that to a family. And and I think it's not that different than other medical conditions. I mean, if I had reason to suspect that your child had leukemia and I said, you know, this blood test looks really serious and I'm really worried that this is 
uh, might be a leukemia and we need to do something. We need, we need to get them to the right help. And I think if we can kind of conceptualize it that way, maybe that would be helpful, at least for the medical folks and, and parents, like this is a problem. This is your whole child. Right. Uh, and, and we can't ignore it. I, I think that's a really point well taken. And also to let them know that recovery is possible. And it's yes. not only possible, it's probable. Most people who have thoughts of suicide go on to thrive and yes. live great lives and are, and are successful. And I think that that is an important part of that message. I mean, while it is the number two cause of death, it, it's also still you have more people living through it than you have dying from it. I think that's a really great place to to stop on the recovery as possible and probable and that we can offer hope by listening and riding the ride. Um, exactly. Are there any other things that you want to leave the listeners with? I know I'll oh. have a lengthy list in the show notes about all the places they can find you, but is there anything else in particular you wanted to share? I think it's really the tell me more and showing the empathy around that fear factor. If you mess something up, you can always back up and say, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Or gosh, I can't believe I said that. The thing is, if you show empathy, and you kind of do most everything not the right way, they're going to feel your empathy and be more open towards getting help than if you go by the book and you have no empathy and you do every step perfectly. So I think that empathic piece is really important. And pediatricians in particular as a profession are very, very good at that. I think that you guys could teach a lot of the other doctors a whole lesson on that, on being empathetic, because you're really, really good at it. Well, thank you. That's, there's a reason I picked pediatrics, because I love pediatricians. I, you know, I feel like, um, I don't know, you know, when you're doing stuff because you care about kids, you know, it's just, there's just nothing better than that. So I appreciate your kind words about pediatricians. And I so appreciate your time and sharing this story. It's so powerful. And I just think it's quite amazing the body of work that you have done and your campaign to, you know, make this different for other children. Yeah, and I'm a big proponent, so I want everybody to listen to your episode number eight of the Suicide Screening Tool and integrate that in their practices. I've, I've been a big proponent for the last four years because I think you could truly make a dent in, in the rising um, suicide risk numbers. Well, thank you. And again, I appreciate your courage and your passion and, um, you know, again, your vulnerability. I mean, it's very, it, it's very powerful way to make change. Thank so. you so much for having me today. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my privilege. Thank you. I want to thank Ann Moss Rogers for sharing with such an open heart and so much vulnerability, her story. This is such a powerful topic and so difficult for many of us. And I know 
including myself, that this is often really hard for those of us in medicine to know how to best help our patients. I wanted to try and summarize what Anne Ma shared. So here are my takeaways. Number one, medical personnel didn't want to discuss suicide and ignored mental health subjects, not because they didn't care, but because they felt frozen. I think this is really generous of Ann Moss to give us some grace. And I think the message is, number two, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. When someone discloses something as sensitive as suicidal thoughts, one of the first things we can do is just take a deep breath because the next thing we have to do is convey that we know what we're doing. So number three, if someone has disclosed, the next strategy is to ask. Tell me more. You are so brave to tell, and thank you for your trust in me. Number four, then listen. The pain is real, and you may be the first person that they have told, and they are petrified. Honor the fear. Number five, offer hope and help. This is something you might say. We can't solve everything today. Your only job right now is to keep yourself alive. Just know we are going to get you the help you need. We are with you. Now let me tell you the next steps, because I think you are old enough to be part of the process. And Anne Moss really stressed that it's important to empower the patient that they can begin the process of healing. Number six, parents may not be ready to hear and denial is real. This may be some way that you can address to parents. This is hard to hear, but it's important and we don't take this confession lightly. The good news is that we have a heads up on what's going on with your child and we can do something about it. We are here with you on this. Number seven, have a plan, a process, staff buy-in, and a team to rely on. In-house behavioral health, I think, is ideal, but you can also establish relationships with community partners. You can always use the emergency room, but think about it carefully because that often is very painful for patients, and it may not be what they need. So get comfortable with learning to assess suicide risk. And the next couple of upcoming episodes are going to talk about screening for suicide prevention and what that looks like in primary care. Number eight, as I mentioned, listen to the upcoming episodes and plan so that you know what to say when a child or teen says, yes, I have had thoughts about killing myself. Our message to patients and parents must be, we got this. Number nine, there are extensive resources that are listed in the show notes. So please go there to see all of Ann Moss's work, her blog, her books, and uh, some of her talks. Thank you so much for listening today. I know that this is a difficult subject, and I know I've struggled with how to talk with patients and families about suicide prevention. It's scary, but as the second leading cause of death in our youth, it is critical that we know what to do. So please listen to the upcoming episodes and have an open mind 
and really some courage that you can become an expert in knowing how to help patients. I appreciate you and I hope you take good care of yourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.